Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to finish up this book today. And then uh, we'll be going into Malachi and finishing up the Old Testament here in just uh, about three more weeks. And so the last time we were together, we looked at chapter 13. And look at those last couple of verses of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9 there. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. So the last chapter, we were in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. The Antichrist and the people of God, it tells us in Daniel 9.27, is going to make a covenant, but he's going to break the covenant. The temple is going to be built, but he's going to come into the temple, proclaim himself to be God. Worldwide, the Jews' eyes are going to be open. The veil that lies there is going to be taken away, and they're going to realize Jesus was the Messiah. This guy was a false Messiah, and they were sucked in by his lies and his deception, and he's rejected. And just like when we studied Daniel, Antiochus of Epiphanes, when he was rejected by the Jews, he slaughtered them. I'm not going to go into that, but the same type, the Antichrist is going to start this incredible holocaust. And two-thirds of the Jews will indeed die. But one-third of them will make it. Some of them will make it down to the rock city in Petra, in the country of Jordan today. Some of them will be throughout the world, but will uh, be crying out to God, God help me, and, and the Lord will say, here I am. And uh, he's going to help him uh, through that, that these are indeed are my people. And now we come to chapter 14, which is now at the very end of the tribulation period. The battle of Armageddon is really not just one battle on one day. It's sort of a series of campaigns that the Antichrist starts in that three and a half years, because not only do the Jews reject him, but other people of the world start rejecting him. He starts heading up into Africa with his armed force to get them to submission. Uh, we know in Revelation uh, 16, the Lord dries up the Euphrates, allowing the armies of China to come down and attack. And uh, so there's this war happening, and it starts in Jerusalem, and it gets carried on down to eventually down into the valley of Armageddon, that Jezreel Valley. And so here in verse chapter 14, verse 1, Behold the day of the Lord. That can starts at the tribulate, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, uh, end of the tribulation period, the millennial reign, any time within there is the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. We know in Revelation 16 that these demons go out of the beast and the false prophet's mouth, and these demons look like frogs. And they go throughout the world and they just possess the hearts of the kings of the world to come down with a vengeance to fight there against Jerusalem. And it says they gather them to the battle of that great day of the Lord Almighty. And then it says, and they are gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. It says in Revelation 16, 16. So the Lord knew this would happen, prophesied it to happen, and he probably gave permission to these demons to go forth and to do this. Sort of like Pharaoh, remember his heart 
First he hardened his heart, then it says God hardened his heart, and so he wouldn't let the children of Israel go so he could show his signs and, and power to be made known. And, and this is the same thing. They're just sort of blinded by this uh, hardness of heart and this evilness to come down and to attack the Antichrist, to attack one another, to attack uh, Jerusalem. And they, they just began to destroy the city, taking the spoil, ravaging the women. All of this is happening, and it looks like all is lost. But then, in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And we're going to get on down to verse 12 and 13 in a minute. It'll tell us how he fought, but he's going to fight in just a powerful way against these nations. Where does it start? There in verse 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. The mountain valley shall reach to Azel. That's a new place that evidently is made here that God makes as things are splitting apart. It means uh, sort of the end of it or, or it could be mean a refuge place. Yes, you shall flee. And as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah, thus the Lord my God will come and notice all the saints with you. So the Lord's going to come and be mighty in battle. It says in Joel 2.11, The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? In Zephaniah 2.3 it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so just as it looks like all is lost there in Jerusalem, the Lord comes and he lands and also we, the saints, with him. Look, if you would, to uh, Revelation 19 with me. There, starting in verse 11, Revelation chapter 19, there in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed, the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We know from John, that is Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. There we are. I mean, some of you guys clean up pretty nice. And uh, Lord's not only going to clean us up, he's going to give us a fine uh, robe, his robe of righteousness, and a white horse. We all get to be cowboys. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. People often say, you know, I don't like that God of the Old Testament. Uh, he's mean. He's tough. I mean, I like the God of the New Testament. He's just only love, only mercy, only kindness. And it's like, you obviously have not read the book of Revelation. Uh, because there he's dipped in blood and he comes with a vengeance to bring war upon the earth. He's the same exact God. God's the same today, yesterday, and forever. 
But we see him here, just as, remember uh, there in Acts 1, verses 9 and 11, it says he's taking up into heaven, into the clouds, and they're all looking, and the angels are saying, they're saying, what are you guys looking at? He's gone. <laughs> but he's going to come back in the same way, which is there on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that the eastern wall of Israel, there's a ravine that goes down, which is called the Kidron Valley, and then the hill that comes up, the very top is Bethany, and then Bethage on the other side of the hill, but that hill right there is called the Mount of Olives. And, uh, you know, Israel's a shadow of what it once was. It's just a big desert place that's been beat up through history. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt more than any city in all the world. There's been more battles fought in Israel than in any other place on the planet. And uh, it's been taken over uh, by countless people through the ages. And when the Turks had it, uh, the way they taxed people was, was by how many trees they had on their land. So people figured out in a hurry how to lower their taxes. And uh, unfortunately, once all the deforestation of Israel came and then all the wonderful animals that were once there could no longer live there. Remember, David used to go out and kill the lions and the bears. There's no more lions or bears. Uh, a lot of the indigenous life is gone. But there's still something just amazing about that place. You can just sense. There's an atmosphere about it I can't really describe. But when we go to Israel, we start off in the Galilee area and we spend time down there and then we make it over to the Dead Sea and we go up to Masada. And then when we come there and we see the Qumran community and then we come down, I, I, I try to make it at the, towards the end of the day, we come up the old Jericho Road. It's very dangerous. Weaves back and forth. You're looking over a cliff. Everybody's got to be quiet. You know, the bus driver says, I'm concentrating. We're like, concentrate, concentrate, you know. And he's going up and rather scary but then finally you, you get through that old Roman road you get up to the top and I have a tape of a bunch of uh, Jewish songs of worship a lot of them we know and and we start making that ascent towards Jerusalem and we're singing the songs and and it's just a real joyful experience and and I like to try to get there to the Mount of Olives all the tourists are gone all of vendors are gone and to get there at the Mount of Olives and get out of the bus and just to quietly sit there on the Mount of Olives and look at Jerusalem as the sun is setting. And then I have done it one time, and I, and I love to do this. Is I, I'll ask volunteers who'd like to get up about 4.30 in the morning, and we go and we sneak and jump over fences and stuff and get in all these private gardens and then watch the sun set up, come up over Jerusalem. It's just beautiful. It's a, it's a serene View. It's just, just a magnificent view as you're looking at that eastern gate. And the Lord's going to come. And he's going to descend just as he ascended there on that Mount of Olives. And when his feet sets down, all of a sudden, there's going to be this earthquake. And it's going to split open. And it's gonna, there's going to be a crack all the way to the Dead Sea, all the way out to the Mediterranean Ocean. And um, it, it tells us there, that then those people are going to be able to flee. There's going to be a little valley there. At first, the people are going to be able to flee through it, and they're going to be able to reach Azel, some place where the Lord has built for them to, to be in safety. And then it says something interesting there in verse 5. It says, like the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. Now, that's an interesting statement, because you might remember that story in Second Chronicles 36. 
uh, Uzziah was a, a wonderful king, a righteous king, but yet there in, in 2 Chronicles 26, he, he wasn't satisfied with just being the, the governing king. He also wanted to be a spiritual leader. But only the priest, the tribe of Levi, was to do. But he was going to go into the temple and burn incense like the priest. And, and boy, these priests were studly dudes. They stood there and said, no way, you're not going in. And he said, I could kill you. And that's a, pretty much a death sentence to resist the king. But um, there it said that as they were resisting him, he was threatening them, that all of a sudden they looked on his face and leprosy broke out. And they said, ah, get out, you're unclean, because no unclean things to come into the temple. And they took him out and it ended up that Uzziah ended up as king, a righteous king, a wonderful king, a prosperous king, but he ended up having to live as a hermit in one little part of the palace because he was a leper, which is very contagious. But there it says like the earthquake. So it's sort of a common knowledge thing. And the Bible doesn't mention it, but yet Josephus in his work of antiquities of the Jews in 9.10.4, he actually talks about it. And this is what is written in the, the Antiquity of the Jews by Josephus. He says, and when they cried out that he must go out of the temple and not transgress against God, he was wroth at them and threatened to kill them unless they would hold their peace. In the meantime, a great earthquake shook the ground and rent was made in the temple. And a bright rays of the sun shone through it. So this light's coming out of the crack of, of the earth and they fell upon the king's face insomuch that leprosy seized upon him immediately and before the city at the place called Eroge, E-R-O-G-E, half of the mountain broke off from the rest on the west and rolled itself four furlongs and still at the east mountain till the road as well as the king's gardens were spoiled by the obstruction. Now that's interesting because when you go to Israel today, there is the eastern wall, which also happens to be the wall of the temple, the, the outer court area. And the, the east wall and then the south wall come and meet, and it's actually the highest point in Jerusalem called the pinnacle of the temple, no doubt where uh, Satan brought Jesus to throw himself off to that corner there. But if you look, you can definitely see an erosion uh, below the wall area there. And there it says there was like four avalanches that took place. And then it, it was such a force, it moved and sort of molded itself to the side of the mountain, the Mount of Olives there. And there is the, a ravine. And sure enough, there's a giant hole there to, to this day. And you can almost, uh, again, see that how that uh, it happened, and just the way uh, Josephus here talks about. And so when Jesus lands, there's going to be an incredible earthquake. And it's not going to be just a small split. It's going to be a huge split. And uh, we're going to be there with them, he says, at the end of verse 5. And then in verse 6, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, the lights will diminish, and it shall be one day, which is known to the Lord. It's a unique day. You can't describe it. Only God knows it. Neither day nor night. But at evening time, it shall happen that it will be light. So during the course of the day, you, you can't describe it as dusk, as dawn, as night, as day. There's just, there's no words to describe it. There's this darkish day that's sort of not completely dark that exists. But then as evening time comes, things go back to normal uh, on that day. And then in verse 8, in that day, it shall be that the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea 
and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Israel's uh, the same place on the equator as Southern California is, and you know how our rivers are. Uh, during the, the winter time where the snow starts to melt, we'll have rivers, but then uh, most of the year the rivers are dry. So you go, oh, there's a bridge going over a river, and you look over and it's just a bunch of dirt. That's the way it is in Israel too. And he says, no, it, the summertime won't affect it. It'll always be flowing. And the Lord will be a king over all the earth. In that day, it will be the Lord is one and his name is one. There'll be no other gods. Remember in Zechariah 13, 2 there, not even remembrance of another god will be in existence. There'll be one king. There'll be one God without question throughout the earth. Now there's this living water that flows from Jerusalem. Part of it goes to the east, so that the source is right there at Jerusalem, and it goes. part of it goes to the east towards the Dead Sea, and part of it goes towards the west, towards the Mediterranean, and there's this river. Joel describes it this way. Look it up, chapter 3, verse 18. It says, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, the fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and the water, the valley of Acacias. And so there's going to be this new valley that's made, and the water's going to flow right out of the house of the Lord. Now, Ezekiel 47 actually goes into great detail on this. Let's turn there and look at that together, those first 12 verses of Ezekiel 47. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, sight, and... Uh, Boy, I'm sure Ezekiel loved getting this prophecy as he saw this. Ezekiel, it's right after Jeremiah, and there's a little book, Lamentations in Ezekiel. We're actually going to be going into it in about four weeks. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, there in verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, from the front of the temple that faced east. The waters were flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. So on that eastern wall that we're talking about, right below that's the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, and then the south corner, we talked about the pinnacle of the temple, well, just a little bit east, not right on the corner, but a little bit east, is where the altar would have been. And all of a sudden, there, where the, right out where the, wall, the altar was, is flowing a water. Now, Josephus tells us that there was indeed uh, a channel from the temple, from the altar, because when the Jews came at the festival times, there was millions of them. About three million Jews would normally be there, sacrifices by the tens of thousands. And that's where they would drain the blood. And the blood would flow down uh, outside the eastern wall, down into the Kidron Valley. And Josephus says that the, the, the blood would mingle with the water of the Kidron there, it was just a little brook, and it looked literally for miles and miles like it was a, a, a river of blood, because there was so much blood. But now it's not going to be blood flowing down. It's going to be water that's flowing down. And in verse 2 it says, He brought me out of the way of the north gate, and he led me on the outside to the outer gate that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. So he takes him out the north gate, walks him along the eastern wall, probably in front of the eastern gate. I don't know why he took him out the northern gate. Maybe the eastern gate's no longer there. And then he was able to see where the water's coming out uh, from underneath the wall there. And then in verses 3 through 6, he describes how big it is. He goes into his feet with his ankles to his knees. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this isn't just a, a stream. This is a river. He can't even swim across it. It's so huge. And then in verse 7, it says, When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. So 
this uh, river all of a sudden, there's just trees all along it, just a beautiful scenic uh, river. And then he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea, referring to the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. It's no longer dead. It's now the living sea. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by from Engedi to in uh, Egarim and they will be, be places for the spreading of the nets. Their fish will be the same kinds as a fish in the great sea, exceedingly many. So you guys who like to fish, you're going to love the millennial reign of Christ. And throughout all eternity, huge fish like the ones found in the ocean. Now this is interesting. He says they're hanging their nets by En Gedi. Now when we go to Israel today, we go look at the Dead Sea and actually spend a night there and get to go uh, out in it and lay there and stuff. And, and the Dead Sea, if you were to take the minerals that are in it and figure out what it is, it's basically manure. However, the minerals are incredibly healing. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar industry in Israel because uh, people can go there and they, they have muds and you can put all over your body and stuff and you lay out there in the sun and then you wash it off. And uh, they actually have little clinics or hospitals, if you would, where people from all the world go there and they stay there and doctors are there and they treat them with the chemicals uh, or the minerals, I should say, that are in the Dead Sea. One of our missionaries that was in uh, Hungary, by a Hungary, Paul Schroeder, he was born with a very severe case of eczema all over his body. And he lived in New Mexico, and that climate was pretty good for that. But when he went to Hungary, it's the absolute worst possible climate. And after a few months, he was horribly had to come back and stay home for a little bit, come back. And so it happened that he had to go home two or three times a year. But finally, he said, this is ridiculous. I can't pastor a church. I'm just going to tough it out. And he stayed for many months. And he went back home, and the doctor said, ah, you let this go way too far. You need some kind of severe treatment. You know where you need to go? The Dead Sea. And actually sent him there for a month. But after a couple of weeks, he said for the first time in his life, his eczema was completely gone. And, uh, and it was uh, where he was healed. And, uh, but in Getty there is a little, quite a little bit inland from the Dead Sea. We have to travel by bus to get there. And then we hike, a hike, and there's all kinds of wild mountain goats and stuff. And then the caves, remember where David hid from Saul? They're still there, lots of caves. And then we finally get back. It's just pure desert. There's a few little plants, trees, more plants looking, but they you can call them trees, they're big plants. But we hike back in there, and then all of a sudden, there's this huge waterfall. And man, we got in that thing, and it was just soaking it for a long time. It just felt so good. You got back out and you were dried off the time you got back to the bus. But it's a real fun tourist place to go. But according to this, the Dead Sea is going to be living. is going to be a lot bigger. It's going to go all the way to Engedi, And those waterfalls are going to be falling straight into the sea there, that giant lake. And, um, and then the fishermen are going to be fishing right by the waterfalls and they're going to be laying their nets out there. And then look on at what it says. It says in verse 11, but its swamps and marshes will be healed, and they will be given over to salt. Now, along the eastern and the northern end of the Dead Sea is where Sodom and Gomorrah was that God destroyed. 
And indeed, to this day, it's just a very giant place of salt. It is to this day that there's so much salt in that dirt. Nothing grows. It's like uh, being on the moon. But the Bible tells us that this thing's going to flood up into that area and going to make like a swamp and a marsh there in that area. And it's going to be radically healing. It's going to be healed. Notice in verse 12, along the bank of the river and on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because they, the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So every month there's a fruit coming on this tree. It almost insinuates it's a different type of fruit. And then the leaves, you can make a tea out of it or you can put it on yourself and it, it'll heal you, the very leaves. Uh, so evidently those sediments and minerals in the Dead Sea, God just keeps it right into the soil. And, uh, and then, of course, by the hand of God, because the water flows from the throne, it's going into the place and that healing aspect of God, leaving the throne, leaving the temple, and going to the place to uh, heal people in that millennial reign. Now, at the end of the millennial reign, Satan's going to be released, it tells us in Revelation, and he's going to have a chance to tempt the people upon the earth who have been born in this millennial reign, who have to now make a choice for God. And it says many of them are going to side with Satan. There's going to be one final battle. And then it says God's going to melt everything with a fervent heat. The heavens and the earth, everything's going to be gone. And then God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Much, very similar the way we know earth now, probably in its original state in the, in the Garden of Eden. And notice that picture. Turn over to Revelation 22 and notice the similarities here. It's rather interesting. In Revelation, very end of the Bible, chapter 22, Revelation 22, looking at those first five verses. Revelation 22, first five verses, and it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from, notice, the throne of God and of the Lamb. Ezekiel said from the temple, but now we know it's coming right from the Lord. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And listen, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So there they are. The same water that flows that healed during that millennial period are now there as a symbol, if you would, or as a picture saying this is what happened during the the time millennial reign. It was a healing of the nations. Of course, in heaven we don't need healing, but it's just going to be there to, to see. It's as a, a memory, if you would, as a symbol. And of course, it's healing, just eating of the fruit and being there uh, amidst those trees. And in verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It tells us in Jeremiah 2.13 and Jeremiah 17.13 that the Lord is the fountain of living waters, that Israel indeed rejected him, but indeed he was the fountain of those living waters. So it's a very interesting picture um, in that millennial reign as that water flows. And going on back, let's look at uh, further description here in verse 10, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 10. 
and all the land shall be turned into a plain. From Geba, which is the northern border, it's Jeba today in Israel, to Rimon, the south of Israel, that southern border, it's Gebert Er Rahim today, and um, it's to the south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be raised up and then inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine press. And so Israel is upon a mountain because it was its protection. And so you had the mountains of Israel for the protection, but now the borders of Israel is going to be one giant plain. Now the Bible does say we're going to go up to Jerusalem, so all of it is going to probably be at the elevation. So Jerusalem is at um, 3,000 feet elevation, and then of course you have the Golan Heights that I think are eight or 10,000 feet, quite high. But then you have the Dead Sea, which happens to be the lowest place on earth. The lowest body of water is the Dead Sea at 1,800 feet below sea level. The lowest body of fresh water on the planet Earth is the Sea of Galilee at 800 feet below sea level. But all of that's going to be leveled out, and the whole Israel is going to finally be on the level. And uh, it's going to be this giant plain, and the whole world, it tells in Isaiah, is going to be able to come to it. There's going to be highways built in such a way they can all just flow right to Jerusalem. I, I'd like to see how that system works. But uh, And then the city of Jerusalem is going to be much bigger to accommodate the whole world, basically. It's going to be huge, and it gives a description of the gates. It doesn't uh, really spell out uh, for us here, but it gives an idea. And then in verse 11, it says, And the people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So there's no more fear uh, for Jerusalem, so there's really no need for it to be uh, upon a, a mountain for protection and stuff, because God's going to keep that place in perfect safety. A matter of fact, a very popular verse that we all know, listen to it in this context, is Jesus being there, bringing peace and safety to Israel. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, it then even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform it. And Psalms 2 tells us that he's going to rule with a rod of iron, that it even gives insinuation in the prophets that if even people start to think bad thoughts, he's going to read it and he's going to take his metal club like you would a, a, a clay pot and just whack, crack it. Just the immediate death penalty. He's not going to allow wickedness to happen upon this earth. He's going to stop it. It won't happen. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's in their heart's going to be submitted to God. It doesn't mean everybody in their heart's going to really like the way Jesus is running things. But outwardly, he's going to keep the peace. He's going to keep things in safety uh, because his government and peace, there will be no end. Another passage you might want to read on your own is Jeremiah 30, verses 7 through 10 has the same beautiful description. And uh, then he goes on in verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who fought against Jerusalem. So now verse 12 and 13 sort of going back and giving a description that happened earlier in verse 3 of the Lord fighting and then that final battle of Armageddon. And look how the Lord fights. It says there, um, 
He will strike all the peoples who fought against Jerusalem. In verse 12, their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. It will come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them and everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. So the Lord's just going to cause this confusion. They're going to be killing each other. And then the Lord's just going to sort of vaporize everybody. Some say, oh, that sounds like a neutron or nuclear bomb. Yeah, I, I don't think the Lord's going to need our earthly tactics. You know, I think he can pretty well cover the bases by himself. But uh, yeah, it might sound like that, but I don't necessarily think it is that. And, uh, but here it, it says very plainly that uh, you know, there's not going to necessarily be carcasses laying around when the Battle of Armageddon's over. Although it does tell us that the blood for a time there in the Armageddon is going to rise up to three or four feet up to the bridle of the horse. There's going to be literally hundreds of millions, billions of people that are going to probably come into that valley, that final valley in that battle. And so blood is just going to be a giant lake of blood for a time. But then God's just going to sort of vaporize everything uh, so there's not all those bodies and carcasses there and be done with it. And also in verse 14, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold and silver apparel in great abundance. We saw earlier in Zechariah that finally the Jews will be seen as they really are God's people and that all of the Gentiles of the world are going to grab on to the sleeve of the Jews saying, please, let me go with you to worship your God in Jerusalem. Please, let me be with you in Israel. And so there are going to be people that actually, um, sort of like the, the Magi that came to Jesus and they brought articles of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave him these costly things. So the people of the world is going to be giving these presents to Israel. Or Remember when the, the Israelis, they, they, they left Egypt? God said, tell them to go ask the Egyptians for their articles of gold and silver and fine fabric. And they did. And the Egyptians said, sure, I'd love to give it to you. And so the Hebrews, when they left Egypt, actually left uh, incredibly wealthy because God sort of put that in their heart. And that's what's going to happen here. People of the world are going to bring the wealth that they've stolen from Israel and persecuted Israel. They're going to bring it back and they're going to be the, the princes, the kings, the wealthy people of the world. Turn to Isaiah 61, if you would. I, I just have to go into how Isaiah describes his time. He does such an incredible, beautiful job. You really can sense the, the joy and celebration of this time that the people of God, Jews and Gentiles, are going to have. In Isaiah 61, we're going to look at the, the whole chapter there. In verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. Now some of you say, hold it. Didn't Jesus quote that of himself in the New Testament? Yes, he did. Luke chapter 4. But he stopped right here. He proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus came, he healed people, he told them the truth, he set them free in a spiritual sense, but, comma, there's another fulfillment, a literal physical fulfillment of this, and the day of the vengeance of our God, that's what Christ is going to do when he comes back and lands on the Mount of Olives and takes over at the end of that tribulation period, to comfort all who mourn, to counsel those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may become called the trees, look at this, they're called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. 
So they're called the trees of righteousness. They're going to be called the planting of the Lord. And God's going to be glorified. Now look at verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old runs. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the run cities. So the millennial reign, God's going to heal the world, but it's not going to be made new like when he destroys it and makes a new heaven and a new earth. They're going to have to get back in there and start fixing things up. The desolations of many generations... Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. So they're going to say, I want to live in Israel. Well, you, okay, well, you can be my plowman, you can be my vine dresser. And, oh man, thank you so much. The people of the world are going to want to come and serve the, the Jews. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. Now, this is interesting because in Exodus 19, he says that you will become a kingdom of priests. And then he says of us believers in Revelation 1, for you are kings and priests unto our God. But another translation that could say, you are a kingdom of priests unto our God. So when we come with the Lord, that's who we are going to be upon this earth, priests unto the Lord, but also then uh, some of the Jews and that are saved from the tribulation period also. And they shall call you the servants of our God. And now listen to this you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. They're going to come and bring them gifts and presents, and they're going to have the riches of the world. And in their glory you shall boast. In verse 7, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in the land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. I will direct their work in truth. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. The descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. And all who see them will acknowledge them. And they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. Look, there's a Jew. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's exactly what he's done for us. And that's how we're going to return with Christ. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as the bridegroom uh, adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its bud, and the garden causes the things that are sown to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And Isaiah it says the trees are clapping their hands, and, and it just gives this beautiful description of all of creation, no longer mourning and groaning, as Romans 8 says, but now celebrating in uh, the righteousness upon this planet. So we are riches. We're going to be the bride of Christ. We're going to be seven years, while the world's going through a horrible tribulation period, we're going to be at our wedding. We're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we're going to be decked out uh, coming from our wedding party. And at the end of the wedding time, he's going to say, let's all mount up. We're going to get on our white horses. We're all going to come flying out of the sky and uh, come with Christ. And we're going to be a kingdom of priests unto God. And the Jews on this planet, they're going to get that physical, um, and not just them, but all the believers who have believed in the Lord, Jew or Gentile, we're all adopted into the household of faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our forefathers, and they're all going to receive the riches of the world for having made it through the tribulation and having become believers uh, to the Lord. Well, back in Zechariah chapter 14, there in verse 15, <clears throat> Such also shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule and on the camel and on the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. So they're going to melt away with a fervent heat, if you would. They're going to be dissipated like the enemies. You say, well, hold it. Why would God do that to the animals? I think for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, 
again, our society today is is basically worldwide has now accepted homosexuality, and, and with that's going to come a whole flurry of diseases um, that come with that immoral act. But as you study the Bible, when homosexuality begins to permeate a society, bestiality is right behind it. When a man goes into a debased mind, good becomes evil and evil becomes good, well, wickedness continues to accelerate. It doesn't stop there. It continues to go worse. And so, you know, uh, several years back they said, oh, we got AIDS by the green monkeys in Africa, so forth. And then they found out later, no, actually, we gave the monkeys AIDS. And so, again, bestiality was going on at that time. But um, now it's very possible that these animals are diseased because of that wickedness. The other thing is if you notice the, the these animals, they're all rather stubborn animals that have to be trained. And even in the societies of the world today, often, uh, you know, when they're training an animal, they'll cuss at it, you know, trying to get that mule to go, and they'll cuss and kick, and then eventually uh, the animal starts responding, but it responds to the curse words. That's the way they've been trained. I know in the Welsh Revival, uh, it tells us that the coal industry went down not because uh, people didn't go to work, but because they couldn't get the mules to do anything. They had to get rid of all the mules and get new ones and train them because they had been born again and they weren't going to cuss at the mules anymore. And so the mules weren't, they, they weren't able to work with them anymore. And uh, it was a, a radical revival, that Welsh revival. People lined up to go into stores to take things back they had stolen through the years and uh, policemen didn't have anything to do. There was no crime, so they started barbershop or, or policeman quartets, like the barbershop quartets, policeman quartets and, and bands and so forth. But um, here it's very possible that, you know, these animals are just respond to cursing and so forth, and they're not going to be around in the millennial reign. God sees fit to get rid of them. And then in verse 16 here of Zechariah, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of the tabernacles. So at least once a year, everybody, no matter where you are at in the world, were supposed to come to the feast of tabernacles. So imagine this. The population of the world coming in to Israel for the feast of tabernacles. Now, a couple of things you need to think about. Say a million people make it through the tribulation period. You have a thousand years to repopulate with a million people. There's not going to be the sicknesses and the diseases going on. People aren't going to be dying away. A guy who's 100 years old, they're going to say he's a little boy. So right now on our planet, half of the people that have ever lived on our planet are alive right now. And we have a few billion. Um, do the math. Figure it out. You start with a million people and you have a thousand years for everybody to, you know, have two or three kids. I mean, the population of the earth is going to be huge. The oceans will probably be shrunk, won't be as big, there'll be more land. But we're talking probably billions and billions of people. But yet Israel is going to be made in such a way that they can all come as one big family and celebrate the Lord at tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, you can read about it uh, in uh, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29 and Deuteronomy 16. But it was a, a time for seven days that they were to live in these little lean-tos they made. This out of the branches and brush and stuff they found. They are just to make a little brush. This is the way they lived. 
And they were to remember, remember how God took them in the desert, brought manna out of heaven and water out of the rock and, and watched over them and took care of them. And they were to remember this. And they were to sleep out there and tell their kids the stories each night about all the different things. Sure, the kids loved it. You know, this is great. Feast of Tabernacles coming. This is awesome. You know, all the parents are going, oh, no, sore back for a week. Um, but what's interesting is we discover in the book of Nehemiah, the children of Israel finished rebuilding the wall. And now they can stand in security and hear the word of God preached. And Ezra begins to read the word, and the people begin to weep because they would have been so disobedient. There's so much about God they didn't understand or know. And, and, and Nehemiah says, stop, stop, stop. This is a day of rejoicing. Quit weeping. Everybody go give each other presents of food and stuff and go eat and celebrate. Come back, and we're not going to weep over this. We're going to rejoice over this, and, and we're going to teach the word to you again. And they stood all day long, and then the priest would give it a sense. They did this day after day. And then lo and behold, they came to the portion on the tabernacle and they realized, hey, that's now. We're supposed to be keeping that right now. And they were so full of joy that there was something practically is right now applied that they kept it with joy. That's how they were to keep it. And it says this in Nehemiah, they hadn't done it since the days of Joshua when they first brought them into the land. Radical. They had not kept the tabernacle maybe just once or twice, and they never did it again. And so, no doubt, the tabernacle is a humbling thing. It's, it's, a, it's a thing where, you know, you feel sort of childish or simple, but yet this is what the Lord required. Now, why? I think it has a greater meaning. It's interesting on a couple of levels. One, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it tells us this, that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Look up that Greek word. That is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. So we say December 25th is when Jesus was born. If you do any amount of research, you will find that's a pagan holiday, and it was Nimrod's birthday, not Jesus's. I'm not going to get into that. What do you mean we're not going to have Christmas? No, we're going to have Christmas because, you know, people come to hear the gospel. We'll have a Christmas Eve service. But uh, not because I think it's Jesus' birthday and not that we're even supposed to celebrate it. But I do believe it is Jesus' birthday. I think Jesus was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. So I think, on one hand, it might be the Lord's birthday according to the flesh. In other words, it's a time to remember that Christ came into human flesh to die for us. I think that's the reason they're going to be doing Tabernacle. It's also interesting, in John chapter 7, turn over there, if you would, to verse 37 to 39. The Gospel of John chapter 7. Verse 37 to 39. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now, if you look at the surrounding verses, you'll discover, indeed, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who, drink, he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Notice that. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I want to remind you that this is what it said would be flowing out of Jerusalem. Living waters would be coming out of there. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, this was a tradition that started after the Second Temple. 
is the priest would go to the pool of Siloam, which meant basically look to the Messiah's coming. Look unto him. And they would get a big bucket of water out of the pool of Siloam, and they would carry it to the steps of the temple, and they would pour it out. And people would dance behind him and have uh, instruments, and it was just a joyful thing. And it was basically saying, God's fulfilled his promise. He brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's so much water, we can even waste it upon the steps. And it was a, a symbolic thing to them. But on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. And so now, these would be drenched. And all the people would show up to, to see this uh, scene that would happen. And there is the multitudes of the people are gathered uh, around. And there it's sort of over. Jesus steps up, steps into those that onto the steps that now are just flooded with water. And he cried out saying, If anybody thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. There's a picture as if the water was coming out of Christ himself. There he was proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. So in essence, coming to the Feast of Tabernacles was a time to come to those living waters that are flowing from the throne of God, from the temple, that southeast corner. They're coming out and and flowing and, and coming to eat of the fruit and coming to take of the leaves. It's to come to be a part of what's going on and being refreshed and healed and and, and just to be around the life of Christ, to be there with him. But notice here in verse 17, and it shall be, back in, in Zechariah 14, and it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. And if the family of the Egypt will not come up and enter it, they shall have no rain, they shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles, this shall be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. So upon the planet, and probably increasingly so as you get towards the end of the thousand-year reign, there's going to be people, again, Christ is ruling with a rod of iron. There's, there's no ability to do evil. God won't allow it. And people in their heart that really aren't submitted to Christ, aren't in love with Christ, are resenting this. And they just said, no, I'm not going to go. It's too far. It's too crowded. It's too much. You know, I've already been there 785 times. You know, it's not like something new is going to happen up there. I, you know, I don't want to go. And God says, then there'll be no rain. And he's going to bring a dry year for them at the end of the year. They're going, boy, that was a tough year. We better go back. Egypt, though, remember the Nile floods and it fertilizes their land. Then they water their crops out of the Nile. They don't need the rain. And so there the Lord says, well, I know the rain's not going to be an effect for you guys, but you're going to have plagues then. And then not only that, but the other people are in the same situation. And so the Lord here is uh, saying that you're going to come and you're going to be a part. But then notice what he has, says in verse 20. And that day holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take uh, them and cook in them. And in that day there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. And God said in Jerusalem, man, it's just going to be, they're going to be so on fire. You know, the holy vessels the priests would use in, in giving sacrifices and so forth. Not just on that. On the high priest's hat said holiness to the Lord. And he's saying not just the sacred 
things, everything, every toothbrush, every fork, every napkin, every plate, every bowl, everything's going to have holiness to the Lord. I, I know uh, I'm a little bit too young, but I was a part of the Jesus movement, got to see a part of it. And I can remember going down the freeways and seeing somebody's car, I mean, front to back, covered in stickers. The Lord's coming soon. Praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Just, you know, Bible verses on there, just plastered. And you see their clothes, just, you know, the shirt has a Bible verse on it. Their shoes have Bible. I mean, they're just covered in it, you know, because they were just so on fire. They couldn't proclaim Christ enough or loud enough or give them enough glory. They were just so excited about Jesus. And that's going to be the spirit of, of that place. And they are going to be giving sacrifices. If you look at the sacrifices, they're not just the sin sacrifices. That's going to be covered. But there also was, uh, for example, the peace offering. The peace sacrifice was where you come and you bring your sacrifice and the uh, priest prepares it, kills it, and prepares it. And then he sits down and you guys all have a barbecue. He's the barbecuer and you sit down and eat with the family and probably discuss what's going on in your life spiritually uh, with the priest. And then you point out certain portions that he himself takes home to his family and, and that's how he was to survive. And, and so we're going to come and we as kingdom of priests are going to be there in the temple probably doing the sacrifice and sitting down with people and their families and discussing what's going on in their life and building them up and encouraging them but it's just going to be a time of people being on fire and there's not going to be any more canaanites there sort of a humorous statement remember when the they were to come in god said kick them all out if they won't leave kill them Nobody, no Canaanites, but they did. They made covenant with them. And throughout the history of Israel, there's always been, quote unquote, Canaanites in the land. People who don't want God, don't want the things of God, aren't hungry for God, but yet they're living in the promised land. They're eating up that land of milk and honey, but they themselves aren't giving glory to God. And God spewed them out, it says. There's not going to be any more of those Canaanite spirits there anymore wow you know as we think about this we really do see the heart of the lord he says i i want everybody there you know in the new testament it says in hebrews 10 it says provoke one another to love and good works literally irritate each other until they're doing the right thing and then it goes on to say, and tell them not to forsake. Don't you forsake the gathering together of the brethren as the manner of some, especially as you see the day of the Lord appearing. Come on. Let's go hear the Bible study. Let's go to church. Let's, let's be a part. And, and it, be annoying to them until they come. And here we see the Lord saying, if you don't come, I'm going to annoy you. <laughs> I'm going to dry things up around you. I'm going to plague you. Oh, look at this boil. Oh, next year I'm going to tabernacles, you know. Not going to miss again. You know, you know what blows my mind? Is that people don't want to go. You know, often they say, well, you know, you ought to make church like this. You ought to offer this. You ought to, you know, send out flyers saying you're going to give people this to try to encourage them. Well, I mean, let's face it. Who's the choir? Angels. Who's teaching the Bible study? Jesus. 
What does he offer? Living waters? Fruit from the living waters? The leaves alone heal things? What do you think the fruit does? I mean, this is some pretty good motivations to go to church. And they still don't want to go. Too far, too crowded, too long, too much. It blows my mind to realize that people have that carnal heart, that they just don't want more of Jesus. But there in Jerusalem, every time the horse moved, the bell would ring. It's not an angel getting wings, guys. When the bells rings, it means glory to God, holiness to the Lord. Every time somebody takes a drink or, or grabs a plate or brushes their teeth, what do they do? Holiness to God, glory to God, praise the Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. In Romans 14.7, it says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wow. That's the spirit we want. Not that Canaanite spirit. Yuck. People often say, Well, we've got to go to church. What's their mentality? Get there as late as we can. Get out of there as quick as we can. And the, the, the description of a good Sunday, it was fast. You ever see somebody in the movie theater going, Hey, hey, it's two hours and 20 minutes. You want me to come back to this movie theater? You better keep it shorter next time. You ever see somebody at a baseball game going, Come on, three hours and 45 minutes. I'm out of here, man. I, you know, what's going on? You want us to watch baseball? You better learn how to cut it shorter. You don't find people in fleshly things doing that. They have no problem lifting their hands. They have problem shouting and screaming. But yet the Bible says, shout unto the Lord with the voice of triumph. The Bible says, lift your hands into his name. The reality is, is we shouldn't have enough of Jesus, be able to get enough of Jesus. Well, you should have the worship like this. You should have the sermons like this. You should do the church like this. People would be more encouraged to come. No. If you'll notice, I do not help out the Canaanite spirit. If you don't really want to be here, don't come. I don't want fleshly encouragement. I want people who say, I can't get enough. Because when people come with that church mentality, they don't worship, they sing songs. They don't hear the word of God. They hear a sermon, it drags on. They're not getting fed. Afterwards, they're not wanting to hang out and bump into the leaves of the trees. It says we're trees. Isn't that often what happens? You go to church and, and you're sort of wounded and you sort of grab onto a leaf next to you and pull it and, and there they share a verse with you or pray for you, encourage you, and you're healed. Coming to eat the fruit. Coming to fellowship. Guys, especially you dads, I, I really want to encourage this in you to really think about this. How are you leading your life? How are you leading your family? Is it that Canaanite spirit? Not hungry for God, not longing for the things of God. Majoring on the minors. Kids, we're excited about baseball, but better go to church. Don't upset your mother. 
Son, I don't care if you're spitting up blood. You've got to go to football practice. Team's counting on you. Not there. Coach might not let you start on the, this game. Get out there, man. Got to be committed. Going to church? Well, you know, if you don't feel good, you know, God doesn't want you to go to church if you're a little tired. You're going to get a straight A on that math. That's the most important thing. You didn't read your Bible for a week? That's okay. That happens. Sometimes we do that. No big deal. I think we got things backwards here. That which pumps us up is God. That which is our major thing is God and serving Him. Ah, you didn't get an A on the test? You know what? I've never had anybody in all the years, went through high school or college, ever ask me, what was your grade in your sophomore year of geometry? I've never been asked what my GPA, I don't even remember what my GPA was. I don't even know. I've never been asked. But yet I'll tell you there's dozens of times that I wish I had that verse hidden in my heart because I made the wrong choice. And then later I'm reading the word going, oh, had I known that principle, I wouldn't have hurt that person or messed up that situation or made that blunder. Man cannot live by sports alone. No. Man cannot live without a solid GPA and great education. No. Man cannot live by bread alone, but must have and live upon and hunger for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I know as a pastor and the elders of this church, God has said, have a church Sunday night. Have midweek service. Have a couple of them. Have home Bible studies. Have women's Bible studies. Men's Bible studies. And we have, but you see, a lot of people are here thinking, well, I'm not a pagan. I go to church. Put my church clothes on. Get my church mentality. And I did church. So, you know, I'm not one of those heathen out there that don't go to church. But the reality is, you didn't eat the fruit, didn't use the leaves, you didn't go for a swim, you didn't, you're not enjoying the things of God. And the reality is, God is telling you, come up and tabernacle with us. That's why you're dried out. That's why you're plagued in your marriage, plagued with your kids, plagued in your finance. That's why a lot of those plagues are going on because you are not coming up enough. Well, once a year, you know, it's obviously the minimum. I mean, yeah, you come to church Sunday morning, got the minimum, but you're still dried out. You're still plagued. I'll tell you, in the 18 years I pastored, I would say most of the time when I have counseled somebody, I repeated the message I had before whether that Wednesday night or that Sunday night or that Sunday morning. It was just, the, that was exactly what they needed to hear. I can't tell you how many times I've come up, had getting ready to counsel somebody, said, you know what, I don't need it. What you said tonight was word for word exactly what we needed to hear. We, we don't, we don't, we heard from God. We know what we need to do. I believe that God has given to the church prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists to equip the saints to be strong, to be built up, to be mature, to not be tossed around, to not be beat up. But I so often think that we're not getting the heart of the Lord on these things. 
that we would hunger for the things of God, that we would want more of him, we would want more fellowship. And I am not the one that can call the shots in your life. I don't know if you need to come Sunday night. Some of you work Sunday night. But I'd say, if you're not doing anything, you should come out. Well, it's crowded, yeah? There's no parking, yeah? I know. We'll be in our new building in a few weeks. It'll get a little better for a while at least. But I, I know all that. It's all the more dear. But I, I do it. God's moving. God's speaking. There's some radical things happening in the afterglow times. And I don't say this to you because we need the attendance up. I don't know where we're going to put you, but we'll find a place. It's because I know you're plagued. I know you're dry. And I know there has to be something done there that needs to happen where that Canaanite spirit is gone and you just have written all over your heart and all over your mind, holiness to God. In him I live and move and have my being. And it hasn't happened. And God here in his word is is saying again, in the millennial reign, (laughs) even there, it's sort of like the final period on the human race is going to be, look at how hard man's heart is. Even if we could guarantee you a healing, (laughs) even if we can guarantee you not a good message, but the message, Jesus Christ, the best music from heaven, that still people are going to say, nah, you know, I'm just not there. It's because of your heart. And I would ask today, as we bow here and pray in a moment, that you would allow God to truly open your heart and say, God, in you do I live and move and have my being. God, am I leading my family in that Canaanite spirit? Has my husband tried to have those family devotions that I've sort of dragged them down? Have, my, have I as a dad sort of made sure my kid's going to get a home run on the baseball field, but spiritually they're striking out? Have I prepared them for a life of sports or education, but I have not prepared them for a life that's successful in following the Lord? Have I majored on the majors, or am I majoring on the minors and really blowing it? Let's all bow our heads. Lord, I ask right now that we would have that life, that Whatever we do, eating, drinking, whatever we do, God's glorified. We know you've given us all things to enjoy, and sports are fun, and education's fun, and growing, and all the entertainment that is before us, especially here in America. Lord, we know in and of itself it's not bad, but if it's taken away from your glory. And God, right now, this morning, there's some who have come here in that church mentality, and you've pierced them through. Your sword has gone between the thoughts and intents of their heart. You've really put your finger on the issue. They're dried out. They're plagued. They're they're dead spiritually. It's not because of music. It's not because of the preaching. It's not because of the people. It's not because it's my heart. My heart just doesn't hunger for God every day in the Word, every day in prayer. I'm more excited about what's on TV Sunday night than what's going on at the afterglow. I'm more interested in my pursuits throughout the week rather than seeking God and being built up in the Lord and fellowshipping with the saints and being a witness. I'm so earthly minded. I'm no heavenly good. I'm so wrapped up in the things of this earth, pursuing more riches. Wrapped up in the, just the things of this life are bogging me down, sucking up my time and taking away my passion. 
I need to stop the madness and, and get the priority straight. Lord, I ask right now that you do that. Lord, I know you're speaking many here tonight to come to church on Sunday nights, but yet their flesh is screaming. They want more rest when really they just need more rest in you. People's flesh screaming. You know they're being called to come midweek or into home Bible study or the men's fellowship or the women's fellowship, and yet their flesh is crying out, dragging them down, bogging them down from really being able to pursue that great joy that comes from you. We know that your spirit, that water is flowing. We know the fruit is there. We know the leaves are around us to pluck for the healing. Lord, help us today to truly have that heart after you. And if that's you today saying, that's me, I, I, I see it, I've got it. I see in the millennial reign, God's heart. And I want to start coming to that river. I want to start eating that fruit. Right now, just lift your hands and say, God, it's me. I need that in my life. Lord, heal me. Just lift your hands into God. Just be like a big funnel that he can pour himself into. I need that water to flow into my heart, God, that would gush forth to everlasting life. Heal me, God. Forgive me for my carnalness. Forgive me for my earth-mindedness. Forgive me for pursuing everything else first but you and your kingdom and your righteousness. I know that you'll add unto me those things I need. By faith, I trust you. Let you be my master passion, Lord. Strip away all other idols in my life and be glorified from this day forward. Heal me, O oh Lord. I want to come to that place that I can rejoice and receive from you. Bless all those who have heard your word today and strengthen them greatly in truth by your power of your spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. God bless you all. Have a great, great week in the Lord. And uh, the, out under the tent, they have all kinds of food prepared if you want to stay in fellowship. Bye-bye.